there are plenty of monuments on the streets of Berlin to make sure residents and visitors alike remember its difficult 20th century history. I've seen most of the memorials many countless times as a Berliner, as a tour guide here, but they still are, some of them are really haunting, especially when it comes to divided city to the wall or to the time of the National Socialist period. Coming up, hear how Berlin remembers its past. An American tells us what she likes most about her new home in the Himalayas. I miss just the peace of Bhutan and walking everywhere and how quirky it is and just a very individualized little place. And guides from Istanbul describe what kind of comfort foods the street vendors are selling in Turkey. A slice of cheese, a tomato, and a simit with a glass of tea is the perfect snack. See what you can find on the streets of Berlin, Istanbul, and even Timpu in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. The world will get through this coronavirus pandemic, and we will be traveling again soon, I hope. For now, let's allow ourselves to be inspired to plan future adventures and to celebrate the welcome the world is waiting to offer us. Thanks for joining us today for Travel with Rick Steves. Just imagine what you can find and enjoy when you walk around the cities of the world. In just a bit, guides from Istanbul coach us on their favorite comfort foods sold in shops all across their city. And we'll hear what it's like to visit the capital of Bhutan. Let's start out today's Travel with Rick Steves with what a walk on the streets of Berlin can teach us. Berlin has become the high-tech and cultural powerhouse of today's dynamic German economy. But there are still plenty of Berliners who can tell you about the difficulties they faced back in the 20th century as a divided city and stories of life under the Nazis during World War II. We're joined now by German tour guides Holger Zimmer and Fabian Ruger to look at some of the most impressive monuments and memorials you can visit to remember the lessons from Berlin's past. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for having for us. Out. To live in Berlin, as a tourist, you just come and go. But to live there, you're surrounded by all of this history and all of these memorials. When you walk down the streets, does it become just background and, and you just see through it? Or are you constantly aware of, oh, this happened there, this happened there, and so on? Holger? It's part of everyday life, yes, but it's not like you kind of oversee it because it is there. It is right in your face. I've seen most of the memorials, like many countless times, as a Berliner, as a tour guide here, but they still are, some of them are really haunting, especially when it comes to divided city to the wall or to the time of the National Socialist period. And in the case of Germany, with your complicated history, the memorials are almost there to not go away, to be in your face. I mean, there's even something called stumble stones, right, Fabian? Yes, there are memorial stones to victims of the Holocaust who were deported from particular houses. And if you have a friend or relative who was deported from that house, you can donate some money to this foundation and they will put a stumbling stone into the pavement so for that person. in the in pavement. A st- like you need to trip on this to never forget the That's horrible right. thing that happened right there. When you think about Germany, a lot of us are fixated on World War II and the, and the whole fascist thing. But, of course, there's many layers of the city that was the leading city of, of the Prussian Empire and so on. Fabian, when you think about memorials of the Hohenzollern period in, in Prussia, what is there in Germany to look at or in Berlin? I think the most visible that every Berliner will know is the Victory Column that's in the center of the main park, the Tiergarten. The Victory Column was built, you know, as a symbol of victory over the French. This is where history in Berlin connects. It was not originally standing in the spot where it is today. The Nazis moved it there to make it stand in a more triumphant spot in the very center of the city. It was originally built near the Reichstag building and was not looking quite so monumental there. 
today six major streets of Berlin lead straight towards this. And this is not part of a big axis, isn't it? I mean, Holger, the whole city is built on this axis, which is lined by memorials. The east and west axis, and really is this fascinating thing. You look up, and you see the golden angel there, and you think, wow, that's wonderful. Then you look close, and you see, wow, this is all cannon. It's made of cannons. French cannons. French cannons, like as as a... we have a Siegesbeute as um, spoils of war. Spoils of war. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of war. So it is a weird thing. If you you would think, oh, that's nice, the golden Beautiful. angel. You can look but up. It's, there a, it's a little jab at the French. Uh, it's a big jab at the big French. Big jab there, at the yes. French. So the Germans beat the French, and of course, uh, in the next century, we've got the whole Hitler situation and a lot of memorials relating to the nightmare of Berlin being the capital of Nazism. What are some of the memorials that you'll see when you go to Berlin that way? What I found very haunting is the memorial to the burning of the books right near Unter den Linden, yeah. right near the State Opera House. And it's basically a memorial that you wouldn't really see because it's underground. And you would just maybe pass the square and you have no idea what it is. But then quite often you see kind of tourist groups looking at nothing really. And then you look there and it basically is a hole in the ground. It's a glass plate in the ground and you look down and there is an empty library like five by five by five meters, containing empty shelves for 20,000 books, symbolizing what was happening on the 10th of May 1933 when the Nazis took all the books and the literature that they hated, that they didn't understand, that they didn't like, and were putting them in a big pile and burning them openly for people to see. And that's now, empty shelves are a very haunting memorial to that. And that's on a big square called Book Square. Bibelplatz. Bibelplatz, the Book Square, and it's facing Humboldt University. Yeah, which right, is right like opposite. the ultimate university for German culture. So many great thinkers were there, and this was symbolic of closing down that that open thinking. And, you know, I've been going to that uh, memorial for years, and it's always kind of glare and hard to see what's in there. But I went there at night last time, and it was lit up at night from inside. It was hauntingly beautiful. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Holger Zimmer and Fabian Ruger. We're talking about memorials in Berlin. Fabian, what's a a powerful memorial for you from the Nazi experience? There is a wonderful memorial that I think works as a general war memorial because it shows us how people just disappear. It is in Große Hamburger Straße, and there was a bomb gap there. After the war, the whole house had to be removed, and it's simply a missing house. So you only have two facades of the neighboring houses, and onto these facades, a French artist put the names of the families who lived in the missing house on the sides of those. These are the names of families who were also, some of them were deported, uh, some of them had to move away, some of them um, died during the bombing. So this gap, this house shows all the people that go missing. And that's a good example of how you walk down a street and you find this very thought-provoking memorial. But as a traveler, you need to be open to that. I was just uh, heading down to Alexanderplatz and I turned left down to Little Street and I found a memorial dedicated to the women who stood up against Hitler to free their men. The Rosenstrasse, Tell yes. Tell us about that one, yeah. Kind of as a last stand, the Nazis were trying to round up the last remaining Jews. They were still in Berlin at the time, and the so-called Fabrikaktion, I think yeah. it was. And they basically took a lot of the men away uh, in some kind of police district uh, house to be deported kind of the next day. And the women of the men, that's the legend, as the legend yeah. goes. There's kind of mythical uh, things about it there, and the history is not quite clear about that. But And that was like in the time where it These was very These were Jewish dangerous. men married to German women, yes. and the German women went to the Nazi authority. Went to basically like do a little riot out in the street and saying, listen, we want our men back, let them out. And that was like quite dangerous because Pretty at the bold. time, anyone who would not fear, just, just a joke could get you into jail or mm. like beheaded. 
So they were pretty bold at that. And actually, it looked like they were kind of can't say what the Nazis were doing, but they were kind of tired of that. And I said, okay, Okay, we let the men go. Yeah. But what I really find very, very haunting as well is the so-called memorial for the murdered Jews of Europe. You know, regardless whether you like memorials or not, once you're in Berlin, you should go and see it and, and feel for yourself because it's like made of 2,700 big concrete slabs mm-hmm. and it's kind of a labyrinth you can go through. Like there's little small walkways you can go through. It's kind of going mm-hmm. a little bit unevenly just... down and these concrete slabs are slightly tilted. So whenever you go, and it looks kind of like a gray thing. At first you think, well, a couple of stones, nothing big. But once you go inside, you suddenly, even like we did it a lot with a group, you have like a group of 30 people and once you go inside, you don't see anyone anymore. You're alone. And that's feeling, this feeling of not knowing where you are, not knowing what is reality anymore, not knowing where your friends are anymore. That is very powerful. And I think like the architect who built it and it was opened in 2005 really did an amazing job. And the interesting thing is it's very important real estate. It's right by the American embassy just beyond Brandenburg Gate. It's called the murdered Jews. That was a, a very carefully chosen word, I think. It's not a memorial to the victims of Hitler. It is to the murdered Jews. What was the thinking in Germany behind that? There was a long discussion how to exactly name this memorial. The first impulse was to just call it the Holocaust Memorial. Mm -hmm. But uh, that would have a little bit brushed under the carpet that there were victim groups that nobody had spoken about yet. They would have been basically almost ignored. And at the same time, the first goal of the Nazi regime was to exterminate all Jews in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then the other victim groups would have followed. So this was an admission that we murdered the Jews. Exactly. That was a big deal from the government's point of view to actually say that. And that sort of opened the door to making, rather than just putting everybody together, making monuments to other singled-out groups. Because just across the street from there, you've got the memorial to the to homosexual victims. Yes. And to the, to the murdered Sinti and Roma, Sinti the, Roma. The, what you call the gypsies in English, and colloquial English. And when we think of uh, all of these memorials, there's one uh, little site that's not a memorial at all. It's just a parking lot nearby. Right. That's the site where Hitler's bunker was. And, of course, that's where Hitler died. It's merely a block from the... Memorial to the murdered Jews. I've noticed that tour guides are taking their groups to this spot that's sort of intentionally undeveloped and and just a pile of dirt. But there is a concern in Germany of not making it a memorial. It's sort of an interesting dance. You don't want to ignore it, but you don't want to make it a shrine for neo-Nazis. What's the thinking on the the spot where Hitler committed suicide? It it was a back-and-forth game for the city of Berlin. Uh, First of all, they never would want to honor Hitler in any way. And therefore, they decided they would not even put an information board up. Mm-hmm. But then the uh, the World Cup drew near in 2006, and many, many tourists were going to this place at this point by local tour guides who, of course, knew where this spot was. So at this point, the city decided they would look like people who were trying to brush the history under the carpet by not putting an information board there, at which point there was a board put there. Then somebody else put a private museum up nearby, which the city then found a little too tacky. So that one has now closed again, politely requested by the government. Because there's all sorts of business interests that would love to capitalize on anything about voyeurism, you know, and there's a lot of gimmicky stuff for this kind of history. Yeah, but the interest is there of people. They they yeah. want to see, not because they like Hitler, but because no. they say, I mean, where did where, it all come did to it all an end? end? Yeah, and there is quite a good uh, information board there. Fabian Ruger and Holger Zimmer come to us from Berlin in Germany. They're joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend the important monuments and memorials that you can visit in their historic city. Holger and Fabian, you're both historians. When you think just in general terms, why so much stress on memorials in Berlin, Holger? 
I think it's not like stress on memorials and such. It's just like that's the way it is. Like you can't avoid it in Berlin. And I do believe, you know, it's these layers of history that everywhere are there and they're to be seen. And I think it's rightly so and very valid that we will engage with the parts of history that we don't like and the parts of history that are very painful for ourselves, for the German nation, for the German people, for the culture. I think it's it's quite important that we have them and keep talking about them because this is what we're we're facing. We, we, we need to move on, but we also need to know we cannot just kind of like say this didn't happen. I mean, you still see bullet holes in Berlin. That, these are powerful memorials as well. Mm-hmm. The only way to learn from your past is to learn from your past mistakes. If you only emphasize the glorious moments of your own past, not the things that you know, went wrong in history, then you are bound to repeat those mistakes. And I think this nationwide consensus, actually, it didn't happen in just one day. It took, I think, the Germans a decade or two after World War II to realize that that is what they just had to do. And by the mid-1960s, this consensus had become the dominant majority. It was kind of a breakthrough, I remember, yeah. when that happened. because I was just starting to travel, and it was a very radical thing. We're talking about our difficult history. And as travelers, when we go to Berlin, we can get a huge dose of poignant and valuable history through the beautiful memorials of Berlin. Fabian Ruger, Holger Zimmer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. We'll look at what it's like to travel to and even live in the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan in just a bit. But first, it's time to snack on the comfort foods of Turkey, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Biting into a delicately chewy Turkish delight releases the essence of rose water, orange, and pistachio on your taste buds. A nicely seasoned bite of lamb with tomatoes, onions, peppers, and herbs is the epitome of a healthy Mediterranean cuisine. And taste treats like these are standard in Turkey. Or maybe you'd like to try a crispy Turkish pizza. Turkish guides Yaren Turkoglu and Lali Sermon Aran join us now in our studio to open up your palate to the delights of Turkish cuisine. Yaren and Lali, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Merhaba, Rick. Merhaba. So, Lali, what makes uh, the Turkish diet unique? Talking about Turkish cuisine, we need to specify that we have two types of it, actually. We have the imperial royal cuisine, which is experimental, done with best available ingredients of the world at that time. And then we have the folk cuisine, which Mm. is a creation out of the local produce. And what makes it unique, I'd say that because of the varied geography of Turkey, we have lots of plants and vegetables, fruits growing. So it's a mix of everything. I would say that our diet is half meat, half vegetables. Mm -hmm. And it's a good balance of it. And I think that's the most thing that comes out. Now, I mentioned the Mediterranean diet. Uh, How do you define the Mediterranean diet? You know, we call it the Aegean diet in Turkey. Okay. And yeah. what is what defines that? Um, lots of vegetables, fresh, not cooked, olive oil, and lemon as the dressing. Okay. And uh, when we talk about the Mediterranean or the Aegean diet, we cook the food with olive oil. And this food is to be consumed cold, not hot. So we cook it, let it cold, and after it's cold, we put it in the fridge and it's served really cold. It's interesting. We call it the Mediterranean diet, but I think your your name is more accurate, the Aegean diet, because mm-hmm. it's the Aegean Sea yes. where this emanates. Mm-hmm. Yaren, when I think of Turkish cuisine and I think of Greek cuisine, it's confusing to me because the Turks and the Greeks claim a lot of the same things. Tell us a little bit about that. Is, uh, you know, the meze, the olives, the stuffed peppers, the, the sweets, the baklava... 
What's Turkish and what's Greek and how do we sort it out? So Greeks and Turks have shared the same history for centuries. Sometimes it's very difficult to tell if something is Greek in origin or if it is Turkish in origin. As an archaeologist, I often check the etymology of the word. Oh, so the etymology, you can yeah. tell from where, uh, what's you a good can, example you can of often, that? You can often tell that. Mm-hmm. For example, when it comes to dolma, Greeks also make it very well, but dolma is a Turkish word. It literally means to stuff. To stuff. So okay. when we when we do stuffed eggplants or peppers, we stuff them. But when we do uh, grape leaves, we call them sarma because we wrap them. It's so rolled. Even, it's rolled. So even the name tells you. But very often, as an archaeologist, when I think about it, uh, not only as a Turk, some things are started by Greeks and Turks contributed. Some things are started by Turks and Greeks contributed. And so we maybe should, we should remember that historically there was a much bigger mix during Ottoman times of Greeks and Turks. And then historically there was a time when all the Greeks were basically mm-hmm. sent to Greece and all the Turks in Greece were sent over to It's a mixed Anatolia. heritage. Yeah, but that heritage, that cuisine survives. Lali, one of my favorite things about eating in Turkey is the pizza. Describe the Turkish pizza. Which we call pide. Pide. P-I-D-E. Yes, it's a very delicious wheat dough crust with toppings of different ingredients. It can be minced meat, it can be mixed with herbs and onions, it can be cheese and eggs, it can be vegetables. You can go as creative as you want, but that would be one of the most common food you'd find everywhere you go. I think one time we were filming together, and I had that in the script, and I really yes. wanted to show a Turkish pizzeria, yes. and we didn't really know where, but I said, I know if we go off the freeway here, find a little village, there'll be a pizzeria on the main square. Do you remember you that visit? You can count on it, yes. And it was wonderful. Yes. It's very it's cheap, it's very fun, very and if, a, fresh. A, if an American tourist steps into a village pizzeria, they're going to get royal service. Exactly. What would you drink with the pita? I would drink ayran with the pide. And what is ayran? I love that. Ayran is a yogurt drink. Uh-huh. Turks are from Central Asia, and we were we are an animal herding culture. So they would have cattle and cows and, and um, sheep. It's very natural that they are good with the dairy products. And we eat yogurt, a lot of yogurt. And ayran is a diluted yogurt drink, which is mixed with a little pinch of salt. And that's it. That's it's it. very healthy. I find if I go to a, a kebab shop or something in Europe, I love to eat Turkish in Europe. If it has Iran in the refrigerator, I think it's a good place. It's the good classic Turkish if drink. If it doesn't have Iran in the fridge, it won't make business. Because the Turks won't go there. Well, that's what everybody would ask for. Yeah. And think of it. McDonald's in every country they go to end up serving the local drink. They cannot survive without serving Iran. Okay, so if you want a Coke, go to McDonald's. If you want an Iran, go to a good You Turkish. would find it in McDonald's too. <laughs> Yarin, when I go to Turkey, I love the Donner kebab. I have to say it's a little bit confusing to me. Tell us a little bit of uh, survival skills for getting a good Donner kebab. What do we look for? Donner is one of the most popular street foods in Turkey. Donner literally means to turn. Okay. So it's a perfect vertical grilling. So we see this big round of meat turning and dripping and sweating Definitely. and carving it to get little shreds big of meat. Big chunks of meat. Mm-hmm. So as the grill turns, you know, mm-hmm. the chef shaves off the grilled parts. Mm-hmm. So the thinner it is, the better it is. 
So the so you thinner should be looking. You should are. be looking for that. And it's nice just to enjoy that whole ritual of, of slicing. Of, of the best way it. to enjoy it is to have it in a little pita bread. And uh-huh. they add some uh, French fries, some pickles. Is a pita bread like a pocket bread? It's a kind of a pocket bread. And they put the, what do they, they put the meat in there and then meat, what else? Meat, French fries, some tomatoes, onions. sometimes onions and pickles. A kind of food to go. I, I think the... There's different kinds of meat. What kinds of meat could you find it's on It's generally that? a mixture of lamb and beef, but nowadays uh, it's less expensive. Many people prefer chicken as well. What do you like when you get your doner kebab? Mm, meat. What yeah, kind the of lamb. Lamb and beef, yeah. That's the historic way. That's, that's the best that's way. Right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Turkish cuisine for the traveler. We're joined by Yaren Turkulu and Lali Sermon Aran. Lali, uh, doner kebab is good street food. What are some other examples of street food when you're traveling in a place like Istanbul? Maybe I should talk about the simplest, which we call simit. S-I-M-I-T would be the spelling of it. It's a Turkish bagel made with very simple uh, wheat dough. But before it's cooked in the fire ovens, it's dipped into grape molasses and then dipped into sesame. So when you see them for sale on the street, it looks like brown bagels. Uh, the crust is brown because of the grape molasses, but the interior is, is white like bread. That's the simplest street mm. food we have, and everybody simply loves it. I love that, too. A slice of cheese, a tomato, and a simit with a glass of tea is the perfect snack. Nice. We're getting a taste of the comfort foods you'll find in Turkey right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Yaren Turkulu and Lali Sermon from SRM Travel in Istanbul. Eric joins us now on the phone from Providence, Rhode Island at 877-333-7425. Rick, hi, nice to talk to you and to Yaren and Lale. Um, yeah. Enjoying the discussion, and it's really making me hungry, i got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> me too. So I've got a two-part question for all of you. I'm planning my first trip to Turkey, and I'm a vegetarian. So I'm wondering if you could recommend either... Uh, I'm going to be spending most of my time in Istanbul, but be hitting some of the other highlights of the country, and wondering... A, where I can find some of the best vegetarian Turkish food, and I also have a very mean sweet tooth, and I've never had Turkish delight, so I'm anxious to try that for the first time and where I can find the best of that in Mm. Turkey. Good questions. Vegetarian, Lolly. Hello, Eric. Uh, Good questions. Thank you for asking them. First of all, as a vegetarian, you don't need to look for a particular restaurant to find vegetables. Every restaurant in Turkey would carry it unless they're specified strictly as a kebab restaurant. Even if a restaurant is strictly classified as a kebab restaurant, it would always come with salad. It would always come with grilled vegetables. So it's very rare that we would eat meat but nothing else. Plus, Lali, when I go to a a lot of Turkish restaurants, it's very visual. You go, you grab a tray and you can point to what you like and you can see, ah, this looks good from a vegetarian. Cafeteria-style restaurants are very common in the busy parts of every city, Mm -hmm. in the uh, business districts or in the old town. They're very common, and the food is usually very good and fresh, daily cooked. And Yaren, do you have some tips about vegetarian eating in Turkey? I think uh, they should go to workers' restaurants. Workers' restaurants. Workers' restaurants are very good for vegetarian dishes. Hmm. Very often, just as you said, on the counter they can show and tell. And most of the seafood restaurants carry very good vegetarian mezes. Small plates, uh, Mm -hmm. often served 
hot or cold, it doesn't matter. But is it stuffed pepper often going to be with meat in it? Or? There are two versions of stuffed pepper. One of them is served cold without meat, uh, and the other one is served hot with meat. Now, Eric asked about the Turkish delight, and that's on people's list when they go to Turkey. What is Turkish delight? A Turkish delight is a mixture of uh, granulated sugar, cornstarch, lemon juice, and different kinds of flavors. It can be rose water or different kinds of nuts. In Turkey, we say, eat sweet, talk sweet. So we love sweets in Turkey. And maybe the best companion to Turkish delight is also Turkish coffee. So they are like best friends. They go together. They go together very well. You brought me a little tray of uh, beautiful little delights here. What am I biting into right now? You are eating chocolate-coated Turkish delight. Probably inside there are pistachios. Eric, double roasted pistachios are the quintessential Turkish delight. Mm. I also enjoy the roast. You're making me jealous. Mm. Yes. (laughs) Eric, eat your heart out because I'm eating this Turkish delight here. And it's got three of my favorite things. And And the rose-flavored ones are also very good. Nowadays, they also produce new versions. They Mm -hmm. are being experimental about it. So there are different flavors. But Uh, these are the... The classic. The classics. And pistachio is just a beautiful word. When you go to Turkey, it's just a big part of your life, I think. In Turkish, we call it fıstık. That's great. I love all of those flavors, Mm. too, so that's great to hear. Eric, I'm so glad you called because it gave me the excuse to bite into this wonderful Turkish delight. Thanks for your call. Glad I could help, Rick. (laughs) Thank you, Eric. Thank you, ladies, for the advice. I appreciate it. Have a good trip. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are eating Turkish delight with Yaren and Lali, and Lynn's calling in from Kew Gardens in New York. Lynn, thanks for your call. Yes. If I remember how to say thank you. Is that correct? Yes. Oh, good, because my question has to do with my memory. In Turkey, I could have sworn when I had an ice cream cone there that as I was looking at it, it kind of pulled like Turkish taffy. And please tell me if that's the way my memory is remembering correctly or not. I have the same confused memory, too. Lolly, what is, what is this about Turkish <laughs> okay. uh, ice cream? Hold tight and buckle up because I'm going to tell you the full name of it. Ready? Mm-hmm. Kahraman Maraş'ın meşhur dövme dondurması. No wonder I didn't remember the name. <laughs> okay. And I only recognize one thing. That's the name of a town in there, right? Yes, exactly. If I translate the name into English, it would mean the famous beaten ice cream of Kahraman Maraş. It's a province on the Taurus Mountains in southeast Turkey. Say it again. Kahraman Maraş'ın meşhur dövme dondurması. Famous beaten ice cream of Kahraman Maraş. And uh, it's made with the crushed root of wild orchid flower. And that ingredient has a particular name. It's called salep, S-A-L-E-P. And the milk used in it is the goat's milk. So both of these ingredients give the texture to the ice cream. And because it's beaten the whole time it's produced, it's taffy-like and it stretches and we love it. Isn't there a machine ah. that is constantly stretching yes. it? It looks like but, it's a pulling a rubber band, a big yes. rubber band. But machines are, are very recent. It's yeah. within the 20 years, within the past 20 years. In the past, people would hammer them, beat them the whole time to give them the higher texture. And in Istanbul, I remember um, men walking around in traditional outfits selling ice cream. Is this the ice cream they're selling? Yes, yes. And they would do a little trick if you want to buy ice cream from them. They would play with you. They will make tricks with the ice cream, with the cones. If you can hold on to your cone with the ice cream on it, you get to eat it. 
<laughs> if you, well, if that's you, a cultural difference right there. If you run so into that, trying. Be, be sure to, well, if it's you run into so that, much fun. play along with it, because yes. it's just totally innocent, and it's a lot of fun. And it's a delicious ice cream. Hey, Lynn, thanks for your phone call. Sure, thank you. Bye-bye. I'm Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Lynn. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lolly and Yaren about Turkish cuisine. And, Yaren, we talked about the Turkish delight. What about a couple of other desserts? The halva we, un- we encounter. Halva, is that the name? Halva, yes. In and, Turkish, we call it helva. Helva uh-huh. is crushed roasted sesame seeds. Uh-huh. And we often eat it um, with seafood, after seafood. Okay. Uh, in eastern parts of the country, it can be even consumed as part of breakfast. Mm-hmm. It is very cold over there during the winter months, so it keeps people warm. Often it, with sugar and pistachio? Definitely. Grape pistachio, molasses. grape molasses, and then uh, sometimes we mix tahini with grape molasses. It's also a very good uh, Turkish breakfast. And another famous well. dessert would be baklava. And one of my favorite things is going in, not just having baklava off the menu, but going to a baklava shop and to have this amazing variety. Different of bak- kinds of baklava. There must be 50 different yes. baklavas. Although baklavas are so famous, my favorite Turkish dessert is the milk puddings. Milk pudding. What is yes. the name of that? Uh, there are different kinds of milk puddings. Is sütlaç part of that? Sütlaç is part of that. Because that's the, a rice pudding, right? That's a rice that's, pudding. When I was a kid, my favorite yes. dessert was sütlaç. But the most popular uh, one among Turkish people is the chicken breast. Chicken, chicken breast. breast milk pudding. Yes. For dessert? Yes, for dessert. It has very fine shreds of chicken breast in it. I want to add to it. That's a Byzantine recipe from the 6th century A.D., that survived in Asia Minor all these centuries. My goodness. Well, there's so much to appreciate with (laughs) Turkish cuisine, and you've got to wash it down with some coffee or tea. This has been a great discussion. Let's just cap it. I'll let Yaren talk about the tea, and Lali will cap it with coffee. So Turkey is one of the biggest tea consumer countries. The name for the Turkish breakfast is kahvaltı. It consists of two different words. It means before coffee. So we drink coffee as a digestive, and we drink tea with breakfast. Okay. And then we continue to drink tea the whole day. Because I love the tea in these little hourglasses. In little tulip glasses. It's a social thing. You go to buy a carpet, they'll say, have some chai. And then you add little cubes of sugar, and then you use these little teaspoons. And I like the noise that it makes as you stir it. It's like a a ritual. It's a beautiful souvenir. It takes me back to Turkey. It's the best souvenir. Whenever I stir the little hourglass glass with Mm -hmm. the tiny spoon. Yes. And tea is generally a black tea, but it's there's, a black tea. There's also apple tea. Apple tea is also, you know, is common. that a touristy thing or? It's a bit touristy, you yeah, know. So you can go for the black tea, but, but generally you just say we chai. love black tea. Yes, chai. if you want to order regular black tea, you just say chai. Bir chai lütfen. And Lolly, I feel like a cup of coffee. What am I going to find in Turkey? You will find a great variety of choices, but let's talk about the most common and the and the known one. That's the Turkish coffee. Uh, Turkish coffee, we don't grow coffee in Turkey. The coffee beans initiated from Yemen, Ethiopia, that's the way we cook it makes it Turkish coffee. It's a medium roast and a very, very fine grind, very fine powder grind. To cook it, we use tiny pots. And if we are going to put sugar into it, it's put, it's added as you cook it. You cannot add it once it's cooked because we don't, uh, we let the coffee grounds sit in the, in the cup mm-hmm. because if you add sugar onto it afterwards and stir it, the grounds will be swimming all around it. Yes. And you don't want that. You will just let the, the grounds sit in the cup and then drink it. It's strong. 
In America or in the Western world, when you order coffee or espresso, it usually comes with a piece of chocolate next to it or, or cookie. Our Turkish coffee comes with a piece of Turkish delight next to it. Yes. It's a digestive drink. We drink it after meals, usually after the breakfast. As my colleague Yaren mentioned, the name for our breakfast is before coffee. We eat for sake of starting the day with coffee. And if you drink it too fast, you'll get a mouthful of mud. Yes, you will. So sip it and enjoy yes. it. It's mm-hmm. a social drink as well. It's a yes. social drink. And Turkey is a social country, and we've enjoyed a great insight to that through the food, the cuisine. Yaren Turkulu, Lali Sermon Aran. How do I say thank you again? Teşekkür ederim. Teşekkür. Tea sugar cream. <laughs> Tea sugar cream. Teşekkür ederim. Yes. Thank you. Teşekkürler. The never-colonized Buddhist kingdom of Bhutan is often called the most peaceful and least corrupt nation in South Asia. We'll hear why Linda Leeming, an American, made it her home and what it's like to visit next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, my name is Lotte Rinchen from Bhutan, north of India in the Himalayas. I travel with Rick Steves. Kadinche. <laughs> That's good. Tucked away high in the Himalayan mountains between India and China is the remote Buddhist country of Bhutan. The capital, Timpu, is home to less than 100,000 people. It has no stoplights, imagine that. Bhutan is a tiny country known for measuring its GDP not in economic terms, but in gross national happiness. American-born Linda Leeming has married a well-known Bhutanese artist, and she actually lives in Bhutan, in the capital, Timpu. She's done that for the last 10 years. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how she found magic in this world and made a life for herself in Bhutan. Linda, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. What an adventure. I just can I mean, it's one thing to be a tourist in Bhutan, but to actually marry in to that fascinating culture. Can you describe Bhutan just uh, in general terms as we get into this discussion? Describe Bhutan, the country. Bhutan is the last of, I think, maybe 16 Buddhist monarchies. It's an independent country. It has never been colonized. It's about 200 miles from east to west and 100 miles north to south in the eastern Himalayas between Chinese Tibet and India. Hmm. It's a world apart. It's really a remarkable place. High altitude? Uh, Yes, high altitude. We live about a mile high. One fascinating thing about Bhutan's geography, it's sort of, it's an isolated place mainly because of its geography. It's mountainous all the way around. Mm -hmm. And it's got every climate zone. And you think, surrounded by China and India, of, of massive populations, but Bhutan is, is fairly sparsely populated. Yes. The Bhutanese like to say it's the place where nobody else wanted to be. They sort of got pushed up in there. It's protected. And mm-hmm. uh, the Tibetans used to invade because Bhutan has a lot of these sheltered valleys where anything will grow. It's high up, and it's in the Himalayas, but... We have uh, beautiful gardens and lots of flora and fauna. So just briefly, Linda, is it a democracy or is it a monarchy? Because, I mean, it it sounds like there's kind of a a heavy-handed, top-down approach to um, how life will be in Bhutan. How does that work? 
There is a monarchy, and it's been, I believe, since 1908, the first king. Now we're on the fifth king of Bhutan. Democracy came to Bhutan, though, in 2005. The fourth king, the current king's father, Jigme Singe Wongchuk, stepped down, and he said that the country should become democratic. He saw, I guess, the handwriting on the wall. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I did some research. It's unheard of for a monarch to step down unless, you know, it's the French Revolution or something. So um, the people didn't want it. They loved their king. But he said, you're not always going to have a benevolent king. So 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 mm -hmm. the country is actually representative now. Yes, it is. There's a parliament and... They're voting. They One person, one vote, and they've adapted very well. Now, what distinguishes Bhutan, as I mentioned in the introduction, is that you don't measure how well your society is doing by how much money you're making, but the government, and I guess this goes back to the monarchy, has decided that they're going to measure it in terms of gross national happiness. What does that mean? Yes. The fourth king, Jigme Singe Wongchuk, in the early 1970s when he became king, was doing an interview in India somewhere, and he said for his people he would rather have gross national happiness as opposed to gross national product. I don't know if he had his tongue in his cheek or if... Mm. I think he was pretty serious, but it became the development moniker. So uh, gross national happiness means anything the country does, anything done in the, uh, the government does, has to hit on at least two of four pillars. The four pillars are good governance, equitable economic development, cultural preservation, and um, environmental preservation. So it's a really good thing. It's made this little country kind of a world apart. And is it used to abuse people so elites can, can have their way with people, or is it actually genuinely compassionate and equitable? I think it's genuinely compassionate and equitable. The government says what it does, and it does what it says. And uh, they really do work for the people. For example, they've just uh, developed a constitution over, I don't know, maybe a 30-year period, but it was ratified, I guess, within the last 10 years. And in the constitution, they made a, or part of the constitution says that the country must remain forest-covered 60% forest covered in perpetuity. So these are the kinds of things that they do. There's free health care and education in Bhutan. And when you talk about happiness, that's a lot of peace of mind when you mm-hmm. go to bed at night and you know that you won't be bankrupt if you have an illness. The, the government takes care. Is there a sense that there's no reason to be frantic and in a rat race because everybody's in it together and let's just enjoy the moment? Uh, what, what does it do for the tempo of life? It's, it's a lot slower in Bhutan. I think family is still very important. People live in, usually in extended families, three, four generations. There's a lot of clean air. There's a pristine environment. It's an ecological hotspot. So I think the Bhutanese know what they have, mm-hmm. and they really try to keep it. Linda Leemings, our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's been tackling cross-cultural differences ever since she started teaching English in Bhutan back in the 1990s. Linda married a prominent Bhutanese artist and is learning to live in the capital of the country that's sometimes called the happiest place on earth, all while unlearning her American-style impatience. 
Linda's two books about living in Bhutan are called Married to Bhutan, How One Woman Got Lost, Said I Do, and Found Bliss, and A Field Guide to Happiness. Her website includes photos and tips for visiting Bhutan. It's at lindaleeming.com. Linda, you are from Tennessee, and you are married into Bhutan, and you live in the capital city of Timpu. From your mm-hmm. experience, um, what do you prefer? <laughs> <laughs> when I'm in the in Nashville, I miss Bhutan, and when I'm in Bhutan, I miss Nashville. So I'm sort of a hybrid. I'm not one or the other anymore, I think. What do you miss when you're in Bhutan about Nashville, and what do you miss when you're in Nashville about Bhutan? Oh, I miss the um, great American plumbing, and I miss uh, grocery stores, and I guess I should say I miss my family mm-hmm. and friends. And um, when I'm in Bhutan, uh, when I'm in the U.S., I miss the just the peace of Bhutan and and walking everywhere and how quirky it is, and just uh, a very individualized little place. So when we're tourists dreaming of going to Bhutan, we have this uh, government that's that's very determined to keep it protected from the rat race. Uh, what are the mm-hmm. quirks for tourism? What are the limits? Uh, how complicated it is? Are you able to just fly in and have a good time, or do you need to set things up in advance? You definitely need to set things up in advance. It being a very tiny country, the government has taken on a policy of high-dollar, low-impact tourism, which means um, it being a very fragile place, they just really can't accommodate that Mm. many people. And also, there's not that much infrastructure. So Mm. there's a a day rate that uh, different depending on when in the year you go to Bhutan, off-season or on-season. But the rate goes for... um, your food, your lodging, and you go with a guide and driver. Even the worst of the Bhutanese guides are great. Hmm. They're very well-schooled. They know their country, and they're charming, and they can get you out of any fixes you might be in. Um, they're very handy guys. So is it? are you taking a tour, or are you going privately and you have your own guide, or is it? Is it your option? Well, several months in advance, you would need to get in touch with a tour agency, either a tour agency in your own country, uh, in the U.S., wherever, or uh, think about a local tour agency in Bhutan. They're very well set up to organize a tour for you. You pay $250 per person per day in high season, that's fall and spring, and you pay $200 per person per day in winter and summer, that's low season. Mm -hmm. But this day rate includes your food, three meals a day, water, uh, the services of a guide and driver, all your transportation, and a three-star hotel, three-star government-approved hotel. I strongly urge people to upgrade to four or five-star for at least part of this stay because most of the people I know come from the U.S., and it's very uh, arduous. It's an arduous journey. It's, It's half a world away, so... Anyway, I wanted to point out that $70 of that day rate every day goes directly to the government. They pay for infrastructure. So if you visit Bhutan, you're actually helping build schools and roads and hospitals. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Is is there a contemporary challenge of just modernization? I mean, uh, there's a lot of power in social media and, you know, just mm. push for being more materialistic and more fast-moving. Does the government see that as a threat to to their quality of life? And do they think of tourism coming in as as almost infecting their culture with with other values is is that a threat to the status quo oh i i'm not sure about the um i know that culture is and preserving the culture is very important it's a it's a very independent country and life is good there's no homeless people there you know people are mm-hmm. doing very well so there is an uh i would say the government is very interested to keep that you know, it's sort of self-limiting because it really is takes a long time to get to Bhutan. Mm-hmm. Coming to the U.S. or going, I, I went into five airports. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Linda Leeming. She writes books about Bhutan. She married a Bhutanese man, and now she's mixing it up from her Tennessee background and her adopted new homeland of Bhutan. It's a country that measures its... Uh, GDP, not in economic terms, but in gross national happiness, and seems to be pulling it off. And it's uh, possible to go there as a tourist, but you do need to do it through the government and uh, prepay for it and pretty much have everything lined up by the government. And uh, Linda, when somebody is going to visit Bhutan as a tourist, and if you were helping them set up their trip and so on, what would you say the the must-see site experience is? And then how would you complement that with some sort of a Bhutanese just experience that's not related to some historic site, but just being there? I remember, actually, we can see your TV show in Bhutan. And so I remember more than once you've said, anywhere you go in the world, it's it's a really good thing if you can meet some locals and talk to them and, you know, mm-hmm. become friends. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really good thing. The Bhutanese are very friendly, pretty low-key people. Uh, they're very interested, especially to meet Americans. Americans have a very um, good reputation. Uh, We usually travel very well, and we're very welcome in Bhutan. Hmm. And so... People speak English? What I would say, yes, English is the medium of instruction in the schools. So if you're, you know, if you're under 50 years old, you're speaking English. Hmm. So uh, meeting people is really good. What I try to do when my... American friends or, uh, you know, friends of friends come to Bhutan as I try to slow them down a little bit, get mm-hmm. them to sit somewhere and, you know, have some tea with somebody and just, you know, watch the world go by. Depending on what time of year that you go, Gongte Village and Fobjika Valley in the center of the country are amazing because the black neck cranes come and migrate there. Mm-hmm. And they this is, well, uh, when they come, it's their mating season. So uh, Boomtang Valley is, is also lovely because of the history and the beautiful temples. When you go to Bhutan hiking and going to visit temples, there's always a payoff in a hike because mm. you can have a picnic and a, uh, visit a temple. Uh, there are many, many temples in Bhutan. And uh, so if you like to shop, Timpu's a lot of fun for shopping. And mm, every valley has something different. So, and when you go to Bhutan, generally would you stay in a comfortable, you know, first world kind of hotel in the capital city of Timpu, and then you've got your driver guide, and then you could drive into the valleys and into the villages? 
Yes, you drive into the villages and the government-approved three-star hotels, uh, there's uh, some variation in them, but the tour agent can set you up and you've got some leeway. The tour mm -hmm. agents will always ask you, what do you like to do? Do you like to hike? Do you like to visit museums and all that kind of thing? So you've got a lot of uh, leeway. You can tell the tour company what you want to do and they'll set it up. I strongly urge people, especially if they're coming from a long way away and they've only got a short time to have their holiday, I strongly urge them to upgrade to a four- or five-star hotel for at least part of the stay, mm -hmm. maybe at the end, so you can uh, get some comfort. Sometimes the three-star hotels are um, a little rugged mm -hmm. or a little bit... Um, we'll go for five-stars, yeah. Bhutanese uh, luxury. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Linda Leeming. Her book is A Field Guide to Happiness, What I Learned in Bhutan About Living, Loving, and Waking Up. Her other book is Married to Bhutan, talking about her experience uh, marrying into the culture. Uh, Linda, this is so intriguing to me. I just, I'm, I'm scheming already on how I could get some time to go to Bhutan. You mentioned, oh, good. Let's just, let's just kind of wrap up our, our discussion. You, you mentioned people need to slow down and have a cup of tea. Uh, describe just the, the <laughs> tea experience. So many countries have a, a delightful tea or coffee kind of culture. What does tea in Bhutan mean? Tea in Bhutan is everything. If you're happy and excited and celebrating, you sit down and have a cup of tea with somebody. You know, if if something terrible's happened, you sit down and have a cup of tea and commiserate. I just recently renewed my car insurance and I went in, I was in a little bit of a hurry and I went in and I paid my money and and then here comes somebody with a, a tray with a cup of tea for me. So I I sat down and had a cup of tea. It's just the culture. It's now I think uh, coffee's coming into fashion, and um, Bhutanese are traveling and getting educated in the U.S. and Australia and elsewhere. So now we have some very nice uh, cafes that have good coffee. Mm -hmm. But tea is is always kind of the staple. If you're going to go local, go for the tea. Linda Leeming, thanks so much for joining us and giving us an, a better appreciation of a country that. Uh, clearly has taken your heart in, in many ways. Thank you so much. A trip to anywhere in Asia can be fertile ground for a colorful haiku poem. Send us a haiku souvenir you've written from your travels. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here's some examples from our listeners we thought you'd enjoy. Cam M. Sato of Williston, Vermont, recalls springtime in Japan with this poem. Staring at the sign, wishing I could read kanji, cherry blossoms fall. Meredith Anderson from Seattle wrote this haiku in her travel journal from a trip to Myanmar. Board the shaky train, the next adventure awaits right out the window. Jan Pyler of Eugene, Oregon, went hiking in the Himalaya Mountains with her daughter and friends. She and her party wrote this brief lament in honor of the labor of a type of local livestock, a cross between cattle and yaks, known as jokeo. Carrying bags up a mountainside for trekkers. Later, burn my poop. And Padma Lakshman of Woodenville, Washington, sends us this thought about a trip to China. Great Wall of China, 
serpentine in its splendor. A business trip, eh? Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, and Kazmara Hall. We get website support from Amara Kipnikon, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Gretchen Strauch read our listener travel haiku. We'd love to get an original haiku poem that you've written about the impressions you get from your travels. There's a link for sending us yours in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.